Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Data Dialogues. I'm Julian Redmond, General Manager at Certus Insight and the host for the series. Today I have a couple of my colleagues with me, very special guests, uh, John Chow and James Hartwright. Thanks for joining guys. Thank you. John, I think this is your first time on the series, so why don't you introduce yourself first? Hi, I'm John. Um, I'm the product manager for Iris. Great. And James? Yeah, I'm a uh, managing partner for a sister company of Certus called Cognition Studio, where we do strategy and innovation, mainly around data and analytics. Excellent. Thanks for joining, guys. So today we're going to have a conversation around a data vault architecture. What are the components that you need in that architecture so that you have all the capabilities you need to not only build a data vault, but to support it over the long term and really deliver value to the business? This is a part of the ongoing data dialogue series that we're running through the Data Vault Innovators community. The community's a place for technical uh, and professionals to connect and have conversations and debates and discuss ideas uh, to share content like case studies um, and approaches to solving problems. And it's really based on community principles. So the more you get involved, the more value the community will deliver to you. If you're joining today over YouTube, then please hit the like and the subscribe and click that notification so that you'll know when the next episode's coming out. So guys, let's jump into it. Um, I think beyond what people you know think traditionally of, they think of a data warehouse, they're thinking you know, big, big database platform, um, you know, now probably Synapse or Snowflake or something like that. Um, but you know, there's some other critical capabilities that are required if you're going to develop a data vault and manage it over the time. So, you know, um, maybe John, in your opinion, what are some of those those critical components that are needed to to turn that into a real warehouse that you can work with? Um, I, I guess one of the big ones is um, automation. So a lot of people can actually do ETL quite well. Um, but where Data Vault really comes to the fore and is different to the other warehousing techniques is actually automation of a lot of the, the code that you need to do. So specifically for the raw vault elements, automation will actually give you an edge and advantage over other warehouse style techniques. So an automation, I guess, capability platform is important. Another one would probably be the ability to capture um, enterprise style governance which is unique, actually not really unique to warehousing, but fairly unique to Data Vault. If you actually have an automation platform, they kind of come hand in hand together. One of the few things people don't fully understand or grasp. Um, what else would there be? Um, well, I know when we were looking at, you know, originally starting the, the project that has evolved into the Iris product that you manage for us, there was lots of other considerations, right? So we had, um, uh, the way that we were actually going to, you know, connect and ingest data, um, you know, the way we were going to do other things like, I know testing and, and other things are, are close to your heart. Um, and maybe talk a little bit about metadata management because I know that you know, you've become a bit of an expert in that. Yeah, so um, part and parcel with a lot of code automation is what is metadata and how that comes into play. So a lot of the automation is based around the, I guess the data modeling that you would do. This then results in a set of metadata which would drive your automation. And as I said before, kind of going to the data governance and lineage, the same information will carry over to your um, glossary and enterprise uh, lineage platforms. It's all about the metadata and how it all stitches together. Um, 
uh, I, I guess then um, the tooling would actually matter as well. So which tooling that pull in the play? A lot of um, organizations that I've seen have got some kind of enterprise capability to capture capture things like lineage and glossary together, but they also don't have an organizational position to pull it all together. So this is where if you have your warehouse as a data vault with all the metadata providing lineage, all of a sudden, I guess you can almost go round off about 60% of the key lineage in your organization is together in one place. It actually gives you the springboards to get the rest of the enterprise into play as well. Yeah. So yeah. James, you probably tend to take an analytics based approach to this. So is there other parts of a data vault that you would say are, are critical as well when you're really trying to deliver you know, BI or analytics out of it? Yeah, the, the um, historically, um, as we know, the data science teams, the analytics teams and the data warehousing team were were somewhat divergent. Um, the that that really conformed view that um, that we require for that enterprise view for the management level reporting for regulation really doesn't work well in respect of a data scientist trying to find something new and interesting in the data. Um, when we move into agile data management, of which DataVault is a it's a strong um, strong player. Um, to basically to add on to John's piece, metadata becomes really, really, really important because you're not providing here are three Kimball data marts that you can access and that's where your data comes from. The, there's a wider play in, in taking that data and orientating that data for your use case, for your business problem and generating your own marts and generating your own results. So knowing what the data is, knowing how much trust you can put in the origin of that data becomes really important as part of the process. So providing the context, providing the that massive information up into the consumption side becomes really important. Yeah. Okay. So um, kind of ticking them off, we've we've got you know the uh, the um, metadata management platform. Um, we've got some automation capability. There'd be a modeling tool, I guess, in there as well in some way. Um, all of those need to be tied very closely together. Um, we're going to deliver code to a warehouse platform like, you know, like a Synapse or a Snowflake or something like that. Yeah. Um, we're going to have some sort of version control, some sort of testing capability. Uh, then on the consumption end, we've got analytics tools, BI tools. Um, also, then you've got business rules engine. We might <laughs> we might dive into that because uh, yeah. that obviously is, can be a whole range of different flavors. Um, but what I wanted to ta tackle, I guess, first was, you know, extraction from source, you know, extraction from various sources or landing of files. Um, I know that in a data vault architecture, there is a landing layer. It's often a lake style um, implementation. Um, so what are the different ways that data can come to that landing area? You know, what, what purpose does that landing serve? Uh, James, we'll start with you this time. Yeah. Um data lakes are becoming prevalent the the um the massive data that organizations are producing hand over fist even if it's internal data and not just customer data um the so data lakes have as we've we've probably all seen um started as a dumping ground here's all of that information that you always ask me for go off and play um as that data uh from the analytics side certainly as that data starts getting integrated within the organization 
the requirement to sort of bring it in line to, to bring, as I've said, the trust in the data, the trust in the repeating of that process um, become, starts becoming even, ever more important. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting we throw away lakes, but lakes, quite rightly, are maturing to have a little bit of governance, to have a little bit of metadata in there, um, and to be, in a number of cases, a persistent store of historic information. And then as our business requirements come in, that we start um, taking that data and, and in a number of cases, aggregate data up through to the, the warehouse, be that a divisional warehouse or an enterprise warehouse. But landing structured, semi-structured, uh, even images, videos, all of that um, termed unstructured data, <laughs> but I, I still think semi-structured that that you're you've got a place where you can go and you can go and see that original set of data, um, but but I think but the other piece is in that data warehousing side that you've got linkage through to that originating data, that that you've got something that's still that traceability, so that if you do want to uh, grab a bit more data or rerun, you can you can point back and drag that data through, or from the consumption side, go hey look if you need access to that document, I've got your little URL into it so you can bring it up at the appropriate time. Um, there's there's um, a lot of push towards um, real time. Yep. Uh, and we've got things like data virtualization and things and that sort of stuff coming up to real time. I, I still believe that a near real time structure uh, is, is probably enough in 99% of cases. In 99% of enterprise cases, the near real time is enough. Um, and many organizations are still running quite happily uh, on daily batches or let's run three batches through the day and, and get our data warehouse and our, our functions up to date. If I've got a true operational requirement, I should be pointing to the operational data and looking at what's going on at that exact point in time and either direct access to the reporting tools within those applications or as I said, data virtualization tends to fulfill that in all cases I've seen. Yeah. So, John, I know, you know, with Iris specifically, you know, we use the landing as the place for data to be coming in all different sorts of ways. What does it actually do for us in when, you know, when we're at landing zone? What does it do for us when we're trying to build a data bot? So um, a lot of the complexity for setting up a warehouse is actually data sourcing. So the idea of having a landing zone, whether it lives in its own kind of little database or is actually exposing portions of the lake, actually actually allows, I guess, um, consumers and, and customers to standardize the way they prepare the data. It gives them one place to go, right? Uh, the key is um, our landing is declared as somewhere where the end, I guess, um, database that you're writing your vault into can actually easily access. For example, if you're sitting on an um, S3 data lake, as long as, just say you're on Snowflake, it has external table access to your S3 data lake. You're good, everything's landed. Um, and James did mention things about, um, I guess, unstructured, semi-structured versus structured data. What you actually want as a small enrichment on the data lake style data is to start tagging it. So for example, if you wanna take a business glossary style lens to your information, when you put it into landing as part of the protocols for landing, you want to tag it with this kind of information. This strengthens the entire metadata conversation we we're having before. This is yeah. something a little above and beyond what most people are used to. 
but where I found this starts leveraging off the benefits of, I guess, the enterprise governance that Vault offers and actually then supports it beyond just the Vault because you're starting to give the organization some control over usually their lake, which they normally don't have. It's the start of a very important journey for that traceability and understanding. Yeah, and I know it's helped us solve um, you know, data that's that's arriving in different speeds and some challenges we've had with, you know, change data capture and those sorts of things. The landing area gives us a place to sort that out, I guess. So that's... Oh, yes. So I'm a, definitely. So um, change data capture specifically has been a very interesting one. So um, there's two... There's What we found is there's two variants of change data capture, an actual message string, which is actually the pure Delta information, versus actually landing something akin to a um, change history table. But by having it in landing, you have the option to almost kind of pretend you can create an area called um, pre-vault where you can actually, in landing, do some small degree of processing on behalf of the source system in order to make it more compliant with what we would normally call, you know, vault landing, where the data is ready for consumption. Um, but by having it in a landing zone, you can actually have it manipulated before you pull it in. Whereas if I was fetching from another system, I'd end up having to then land and create it. That's why giving someone a landing place, you still have the opportunity to manipulate it all. And we found for that um, persistent um, CDC history table, we absolutely yeah. needed a preprocessor of a small extent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just identifying the deltas, right? So, um, oh, yeah. so if we gonna, go, I was going to say there's one, there's one more. Sorry. sorry there is there is one more that I would go in there that we've hit with a with a number of clients, and that's where you don't own the data, where it's an untrusted data source that you're getting from um, from open data or something like that. And just that that sort of initial check of yeah. look, it looks complete that within the Excel structure, there's still those same attributes before we take it anywhere near a raw vault. That there's just that sort of comfort check on yeah. on what is usually untrusted data coming into your system. So, okay, cool. So landing's pretty important. Um, the next step from there then is, I guess, you know, modeling, mapping, code generation. Um, you know, pretty easy to rattle those off, but that's kind of the secret source of building a data vault, I guess. Um, how important, John, um, is it to really have good um, metadata integration between those components? I kind of touched on it a, a little bit earlier. Um, the metadata is fundamentally what you're keying in. So when you do a, I guess, a data modeling design from your source model to your target model, which would be the vault constructs, you're effectively creating some metadata, what's, what's from source, what's your target, and then the mappings. This metadata should be where you can and have the tool capability used to generate your code. At the same time, that same metadata set should be piped across to your enterprise glossary to actually become your technical lineage. Now, all of these pieces of information seems to be platform specific. They're actually not. So if you look at a pure code generation angle, I might be saying I'm targeting SQL for Snowflake for now. I can generate those DDLs and DMLs as files. On the side of that, I might have some files, for example. On the RS platform, we'd be going to IGC for lineage. I generate some lineage files, the assets and the mappings. All these would then be wrapped into a single payload via co-control as a release of sorts. And that's a completely different topic about the, the, the complexities there. But yeah. you kind of bundle it into a co-control release package. Once that's kind of tested and, and approved, that's deployed as a whole payload. Mm 
Um, one evolution we've made for RSL inside of that is that same metadata using the original modeling, we're keeping that in its pure form so we can actually retain the models to be reused on the RS platform. So you can actually then transplant not only the payloads of code, but the actual state that the developer generated their code from and transplant that between users or actually check it all into a large repository if you felt like. Mm. So it's yeah. used for design, used for collaboration, used for auditing and, and reconciliation and, and, and understanding. Yep. Yeah. So it's pretty critical. James, did you have anything to add? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, this is one of the big places where I see um, Data Vault um, really changing the game in the way that we'd have historically worked on warehousing. And it's the, the fact that in mapping that incoming data and profiling it and looking at it, um, that's the first the first stage in, in Data Vault in Agile Management where you're going to show it to your end customer or you're going to show it to the source system owner and, and start asking questions about the validity, completeness of that data. And you can only really do that once you've got the that set of metadata where you know that I've got, you know, I've got the gender attribute coming in and I've got male, female, M, F, one, two, three. Well, what does a one, two, three mean? It doesn't doesn't seem to fit. And you historically we'd have just maybe ignored that data, put it to one side, but now in Data Vault with showing all of the data all of the time. And we need the business, we need the source owners to help us and get that up and running very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, Data Vault's all about the speed of getting that data out. So getting that process and getting your methods and processes changed in line with that is critical within within having tooling and having processes set up for that. And now you're touching almost on data quality framework, and we're going to push that to the side, and we'll do a whole yep. separate episode on data quality yeah. framework because uh, data quality is bigger than we can tackle in this particular yeah. uh, episode. But um so, okay, so that's really good. So then people that get to the point where they're actually automating stuff. Um, John, I know this is a topic that's really close to your heart, is how important is it that the templates are adhering to the DV2 standards in a true way? And also, I guess, a complete set of, of templates when you come to automation. Um, I, I guess for my RS platform, that's the biggest point of development for us to adhere to all of those. So a lot of work and effort has gone into the Data Vault 2 kind of approaches to the point where things can be templated. Um, a lot of the, I guess, more delicate um, decisions aren't apparent to a lot of the, the, the people that first step in the vault, right? So they go, oh, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. But the people have done it for a long time. Dan's put a lot of effort with his people to get this right. Following the templates and the and the recommendations as is is critical, and that's why a lot of the effort for for my platform is actually to ensure that the templates follow all of the standards, even when initially, even for me, it didn't make complete sense. I've learned that in some cases the hard way. Um, trying to deviate from the templates introduces significantly more problems than you think you're solving. Um, this has been around for a while. A lot of people have put a lot of effort into this, and once you get deep into it you see why later on a lot of the decisions were made that are not apparent up front. That's probably one of the biggest challenges, not even as a platform owner, but actually as you know, working with consultants on this. Mm. Um, a lot of people will assume I've done warehousing for a while. I can interpret this. I might have a different idea. Stick to the templates and only challenge it. And if you challenge it, talk to the right people so they might be able to explain to you why it goes a certain way. 
a lot of thought has been has gone into this a lot of hours once you come yeah. to the other end like i am and i'm trying to build the automation templates for this you really see it yeah, yeah. and james i guess um that also lends to the completeness um because there's you know, everyone knows hub satellites and links but maybe unless you're really deep into um uh DV2, you might, well, you might know about pits, you might know about bridges. You know, do you know about record tracking satellites or do you yeah. know about non historized links or yeah, yeah. multi active satellites and all these things? And so a complete set of templates is as, uh, probably as important as adhering to the standards because then you get consistency the whole way through, right? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. Um, look, the, the, there, is, there is the starter block of getting that core right um, as you're doing your, your first sets of um, sources. As John says, unfortunately, even on those first sets of sources, you've probably picked one that you haven't been able to do before. And if you find yourself down an alleyway, look, it's 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 never totally irreversible, but it's better not to go down the dark alley if you can to start with. the The big piece that we we have we we are trying to do in line with Iris, in line in and in line with the rest that we do with Certa Solutions is that. Um, uh, a little bit of selling here, the, getting the mentoring in, getting the people who've done this before and getting those first few sources in and up and running um, is is key so that you get comfortable with following the processes and why. But the other thing that we that I, that we built, and I know we have because I've been part of it, is, is what we call playbooks. It's a US term from American football, but it is, it's the, in this situation, what should I do? Which of the DV principles and processes and templates should I pick up and use? And we're, we're trying to build up that as, as wide as possible and as helpful as possible so that people start doing things the right way rather than have to unpick a year later. Because yeah. you, you, never, you never know at the start of anything that you do where you've where you necessarily where you've gone wrong. And of course, when you're starting with something new, it's like, no, no, this feels right. But only when you've gone in with the experienced person will you actually go, ah, okay, I get it. And you may not get it for a year. You may not get yeah. it until the, that system extends or sunsets or replaces. You may not get why we set up the record tracking satellite in that way. But once you've got it, you'll be going, no, no, we need to do this in all of these cases. They were right. Yeah. The, I the, think the that's pretty times cool. we've heard, Yeah. The amount of times we've heard, oh, yeah, they were right. <laughs> It's yeah. nice and bad. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, I mean, it, it makes sense. I don't think it's overselling that that learning from someone who's got the experience, mm -hmm. you know, who can mentor you through stuff. And, and you know, I know we take the, the path of trying to train and enable as many people mm -hmm. as possible. Um, so that, and I think that's that's reasonable. Um, so, okay. So the next, I guess, we've, you know, we've covered off uh, ingestion from source and landing and, and modeling and metadata management and code generation and, and templates. So we pretty much built a data vault structure into a warehouse. The next bit um, is, you know, uh, version control and testing. Um, and they're big topics. How important, John, in your opinion, is it to bring software development like practices to those two areas? This is probably one of the biggest gaps I see you know, across the board for data warehousing teams. <laughs> I remember early debates I had with um, James about um, uh, how important software practices were to data warehousing. And traditionally, data warehousing crews 
look at the work as I'm just doing some coding. Yeah, someone eyeballs it. I release it. If there's a problem, I fix it in production, right? Mm -hmm. um, the software development practices dictate absolutely otherwise. You go, I make sure we have full control over what a person's changed and expression when you have multiple developers. Check that they don't clash into each other. All the pieces work out independently tested and verified and including any clashes are all resolved and retested. Once you then have the payload of work, you then release that as a fixed release. It's all kind of software. Um, when <laughs> warehouse teams do not follow this, that's when you get um, people accidentally unwinding code. For example, James might do a piece of work um, against just a writing query, right? And then I change the table that his query taps into without checking. Yeah. You, you, you might clash or it could be he's literally um, edited a function and then later on I edit it and we just don't know. With that yeah. software, uh, proper software development practices, this all goes unknown until you hit production and you have a production issue. Testing is the, the I guess, the second line of defense where once we resolve whether two people working side by side are clashing into each other, you still need to verify whether each individual unto themselves has done the right thing. So by having an independent tester do the work, and I'm a strong um, advocate of someone else other than the person coding do the testing. Yeah. Um, you both look at the requirements as is to inform what the developer for one codes and then what the tester as a separate entity would actually verify. If there are any discrepancies, they have a conversation, may go back to the BA or whoever came with the requirements, but then you get to the point where you get a done-done position where the developer's done and the tester is done. Yeah. At the very least, then you have the certainty. Two pairs of eyes independently verified this. The likelihood of something getting into production that's wrong is lower. You're not going to get complete coverage. The idea of 100% testing is usually overly expensive and in most cases is not worth the investment. That's where each, I guess, asset or team would make a call what level of testing you want to do. And that's how deeply the tester will test. That's also another misconception where testing, you have to do everything. Often that becomes too costly. That's why you actually need to make some kind of, I guess, cost and risk-based decisions there. Yeah. Um, now, where automation kicks into play on the back of all this is, if you have um, done your testing in a way that is repeatable, talking about people creating their own test data, uh, measuring uh, against an expected output, you can then automate that into a regression test. This is where then you roll into the continuous integration and continuous development realm, the next level of the software application on top of warehousing. Uh, that yeah. might be a topic a little beyond what we need to cover here, but yeah. that's definitely the ultimate agenda where you get a automated regression test to verify what you've released ongoing in your production warehouse. Yeah, it's 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 a deep topic, and maybe I think we should get a sticker made up saying a row count is not a test or something. But um, James, this leads right into the the um, data ops discussion that we were having uh, the other day, which is another um, podcast that's gone out in the series. Um, so, any thoughts on that? I mean, it's been yeah. a, I guess for us for what John's bought around the rigor around software development level testing has been a real. Um, uh, eye-opener and adaption, I guess, for, for us as a traditional data warehouse, you know, yeah. practitioners. Like, yes, I, I, I've run a, a large data warehouse team and our standard response for putting any new capability out was it'll be about 12 weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And it was, it was because, partly because we've got 
hey, here is a construct, here are all the dependencies, right? We're doing ETL here and ETL here and ETL there, and then it is, and we've got to prove out that this new capability is working um, and not and go and look at all the other areas, making sure we're having no impact. As soon as you move into a data ops, agile data management piece, that has to go out the window because you're in um, CICD. You're continuously developing new pieces and continuously deploying them. You can't do that in a 12-week package because that's why the business always hated us. <laughs> the, <laughs> I've got the need now and I've got the one. And why Why is that other, other business area over there affecting the speed of which you can deliver stuff to me? So, so getting those, the, the great little bits around here are the business rules that I'm creating or adjusting on behalf of you, and I'm building and testing them in isolation. And as John says, once I've got that set up, I can repeat a bit. Once I've got that core, if I'm deploying something in around there, I get a retest and I get a reproof that this still works. Um, and so adding all of those bits and pieces on in, in your CI, CD process just becomes the way, the, the only way you can do it. Uh, the, the other piece there, I'll, I'll call back to the testing process. I said ETL. Well, we're following ELT now. So, so, and we're following code automation. So the areas in which we need to do testing uh, are somewhat reduced. Uh, mm. The areas in which we need to do testing are beautifully functionally defined. Yes, we've got some complexity in some of the business rules, but it's in this area and we've got these inputs, we've got these logic paths and these outputs. So that testing process becomes repeatable, definable, uh, the ability to throw a, or a pure set of data at it and test all of those logic paths becomes just a beautiful part of a well-managed data management process. Yeah. Now look, as I suspected, there's still a couple of topics left and we're, <laughs> we're pretty much out of time. Um, so I really want to talk, uh, and I'll get you guys back, because I want to talk about um, business rules and the options for business rule engines and how that fits into the bigger picture. Um, and also what's possible around automation at the information mark end where we start delivering to BI tools and analytics tools and those things. So, so that'll be a, a follow-up session we'll do. Um, but I think, you know, for now, if you've liked what you've heard, um, then please, you know, hit the like, hit the subscribe and the notifications, uh, head over to the Data Vault Innovators community site and uh, make sure that you accept uh, notifications there so that you get all the updates, you get all the new episodes, and there's a lot more content coming. Um, and, you know, please get involved. And um, we've got lots of announcements coming early in the new year. Um, so you'll see lots of updates uh, are starting to flow out. Um, for now, though, guys, thanks for a really interesting conversation. And we'll get you back to, to have another one soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.